0: And I think it's way too easy to get caught up in in the downsides or even caught up in questions and discussions, which really don't have much bearing on, on real life. So the way I, I do this is is through the framing of something called responsible innovation, which it takes different forms for different people. But typically, I would say we've got powerful technologies, it's very clear, we live in a world with a lot of problems that we can actually help resolve in some way with technology innovation. So innovation is good. And it's, it's part of our DNA, it's part of our genetics, we're actually born to be curious and, and innovate. But the chances are that if we don't think about what we're doing ahead of when we're doing it and what the consequences might be, we're going to end up going down pathways that aren't going to be helpful. They're not going to be helpful because they're going to harm people, they're going to disadvantage people, and they're going to remove any economic advantage that you might have with your product.
1: Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies, transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Technology and innovation are great, but they need inspiration. Where does that inspiration come from? Inevitably, for many technologists and futurists, that's sci-fi. People focused on creating, designing, and envisioning the futures that humanity is headed forward so that we can better plan and prepare for them. Well, that's all good and well, but what happens when things go wrong? It often is. That's what sci-fi is here for, to help us understand the future and to better prepare for it. And today we've got someone who's focused on just that and more, Andrew Maynard on the program, Mr. 2020 Science. He's the director of Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University and a professor in the School of Future Innovation for Society. He's also the author of Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies. And his research is focused on risk innovation. How do we create incredible technologies for the future without destroying mankind, society. How do we do this in a sustainable, safe way? His background is in nanoparticles and synthetic biology. We'll talk a bit more about that on the podcast. And through the course of his work, he's testified before Congress, worked on numerous National Academy panels, been involved with the World Economic Forum, the International Life Sciences Institute, and much, much more. In today's awesome episode, we discuss the biggest risks to humanity's future. Why Andrew is excited and terrified about AI and, and synthetic biology. The reason Ex Machina is such is such a terrifying example of AI and how we can use it to better understand where we're headed and what we should avoid, how Andrew thinks about risk and why it's different than most, why man's reach exceeds his grasp and what we can do about it, whether China or the US is more of a surveillance state, and why nanotech is disappointed to date and where it's headed from here. And now without further ado, I give you Andrew Maynard. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time no strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously, disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program.
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: The first thing I wanted to jump into is, let's, let's quickly cover your background, a 30,000 foot view, and then we'll get into it. Sound good?
0: Okay, that sounds great and great to be here. Uh, sorry, I was just having a, a moment there where I had you playing with around a two second delay. So hopefully I, I'm back on planet Earth now. So yeah, my background, I'm actually a physicist. I trained at the University of Cambridge in the UK and spent many years in labs playing around with airborne particles and nanoparticles. But for the last 15 or 20 years, I've worked with emerging technologies, everything from nanotechnology through to synthetic biology and a whole bunch of others, trying to understand what the potential downside to the tech is and how you actually develop it in in socially responsible ways so we can see the benefits of the technologies.
1: So there's a lot to unpack in that. And technology, first of all, people Almost never think about the risks. They always think about the rewards and think about risk later. Right. How do you do your job and do a good job of it when people get <laughs> upset? You're telling them to slow down, and we want to. I know.
0: Well, it's it, it's it's tricky. Yes, because of course, I certainly if you're a, a bit of a geek, and I would put myself in that that category. Of course, you're excited about tech innovation. I mean, what's not to like about engineering materials into nanoparticles and goodness knows what? What's not to like about artificial intelligence or, or engineering microbes to do cool things? So the the way I usually approach it is, first of all, it's very clear if you look at history for every good idea that we've come up with, there's been a downside to it. And in fact, the history of technology innovation is trying to fix the problems that the previous generation actually created. And so there's a good argument for saying, well, let's see whether we can actually avoid those problems before we actually create them this time round. And so that's where a lot of my thinking comes from with everything from new chemicals and playing around with biology to the more esoteric sides of artificial intelligence. It, It seems to make sense. If we do have the ability to see what could possibly be go wrong in the in the future over the next ten years or so, to take early action to make sure we steer things in a, a positive direction.
1: Speaking of which, which technologies are you most worried about over the next ten 10- year <laughs> time horizon?
0: Uh, yeah, I, you know, that that is a tough one, and I it depends which day you catch me on. But if I was brutally honest, I would say that many of the technologies we're developing at the moment, if we're sensible, we can actually navigate them fairly successfully. And You hear a lot of scare stories about everything from genetic engineering, especially if you're looking at, at what we call dual use with weaponizing the genome, or scare stories about superintelligence and artificial intelligence. Most of those are little more than scare stories, to be honest, and it's very hard come up with plausible scenarios where things could go badly wrong. That said, if there's something that really does keep me awake at night is the subtle effects of both um, AI systems, so machine learning in particular, with how we're developing systems where we really just don't know how they're making decisions. And it's also what happens when you begin to put different technologies together. So what happens when you develop your AI algorithm to start designing new microbes that do new things that you really can't understand? That's where the weird stuff happens. And that's where, I get a little bit worried that we really don't know what we're doing or what the consequences are.
1: Our grasp exceeds our reach. I think that's the that's the I thing.
0: I think that's the phrase. Yes.
1: What are what are some of the areas right now that you're seeing that you're most excited and worried about in terms of examples?
0: And and I must confess, I mean, they they both come together because everything which is exciting has a has a downside on the the genetic engineering and especially the gene editing side of things. I actually think we're at a cusp of what we can do now. We can not only get a, a rough grasp of what the genetic code of DNA does, but we can actually start to precisely edit it and engineer it. And techniques such as, as crispr Cas9, they're effectively a search and replace editing function. So you have your, your DNA, you can start planning what you want those DNA strands, that DNA code to be like on the computer. Then you can design a little set of, of molecules that will go along DNA in the real world and search and replace for what you want to get out and what you want to put in. That's an incredibly powerful technology. And if you think about the good it can t- and do, so just think about mosquitoes, for instance, and mosquito-borne diseases. We're now Now looking at how you can engineer mosquitoes, not to get rid of them entirely, but to actually just get rid of the diseases that they carry, just snip those those disease carriers out. That could utterly transform the lives of a lot of people. But you can also see the downside of that, of course. If you can engineer uh, anything from mosquitoes through to larger organisms for good, you can also do it for bad. But that's a technology that excites me. And I I must confess, right at the other end of the spectrum, I'm really excited with some of the stuff that's happening around AI, the ability to create algorithms that that pull together data and interpret it in ways that humans just are incapable of doing and adding value in that way. That, that is also incredibly powerful, but also incredibly dangerous.
1: How do you think about, at least in terms of CRISPR and genetic editing, obviously there's people that are going to try to do good. There's people that are going to try to do bad. Yep. But how do you think about the people that are trying to do good that actually end up doing bad, the black swan type events that That's, you foresee? Th-
0: those are the things that worry me. Um, there are actually, in all of these areas, there are actually remarkably few people actively trying to do bad. That That's something of a Hollywood myth. The things that are more concerning are those people that are tinkering with systems they don't fully understand. And they're trying to do good things, but they're not quite sure what the consequences will be. The, the one thing in this favor is usually with complex systems, if you mess with them, the most likely thing to happen is the system breaks. So you've almost got a fail-safe broken and um, built in. So you imagine you take your computer or your smartphone, if you were just to uh, rip the back off and start messing about with the electronics, the chances are you'll just brick it rather than it transform into something else. It's the same with biology. But there is that, as you said, with the the black swan effect, there's something that actually has serious unintended consequences that we can't put back in the box. And one of the questions there is how do we create a framework or a set of social norms that helps people avoid doing the really stupid things while they're experimenting with the cool things?
1: What are the really stupid things in your opinion?
0: Well, (laughs) So, I don't know. You could, it d- depends how far you want your imagination to go. So, um, I don't know. Think of an example. Think about taking a microbe like E. coli, a, a very common uh, bacterium, and imagining what you can um, encode it to do. So, maybe you decide that you want um, a bacterium like this, that if you ingest it, instead of it being harmful in your gut, it actually starts producing vitamins which are going to be useful. I and mean, this is totally hypothetical. And say now you're a high student doing this, you can either get the kit that you need to do it off eBay or somewhere, or you can go along to your local community biolab and do it. And you think, that's great. I've got a vial of this Ecolab and I'm going to eat it and it's going to com- and continuously give me my, my daily dose of vitamins. Apart from the fact that you can imagine if you miss something and you end up with a, a strain of bacteria that not only reproduces very fast, but actually produces toxins as well as the stuff you want. Then you've got a scenario, and it's a silly scenario, but it's a scenario where the good intentions of that idea to design something that's going to be healthy actually back fire very badly. But then, then you can scale that up. You can get as dark as you want to be with that sort of scaling.
1: And it's important to think about the risk, but it's also important not to get paralyzed by it. Absolutely.
0: How Absolutely.
1: Do you, how do you deal with that? How do you console people for that? Because if we if we implement autonomous vehicles and we're able to cut our deaths by 90%, 10% are still getting killed by a robot. Is
0: that Absolutely. acceptable? And I and I think it's way too easy to get caught up in, in the downsides. We're even caught up in Questions and discussions, which really don't have much bearing on on real life. So the way I, I do this is is through the framing of something called responsible innovation, which it takes different forms for different people. But typically, I would say we've got powerful technologies. It's very clear we live in a world with a lot of problems that we can actually help resolve in some way with technology innovation. So innovation is good, and it's it's part of our DNA. It's part of our genetics. We're actually born to be curious and and innovate. But the chances are that if we don't think about what we're doing ahead of when we're doing it and what the consequences might be, we're going to end up going down pathways that aren't going to be helpful. They're not going to be helpful because they're going to harm people, they're going to disadvantage people, and they're going to remove any economic advantage that you might have with your product. So the, the, the conversations I usually have are along the lines of, if you're an innovator, if you're doing cool stuff, and you think about a framework of how to innovate responsibly, even just spending half an hour about thinking, what are the consequences of what you're doing? And how can you change what you're doing from the get-go to push things along a more positive pathway forwards? That I think is a useful conversation because it doesn't it doesn't block innovation, but it helps people think about how can they innovate to achieve the ends they're looking at? How can they innovate to create the value that they really want to create rather than end up destroying things inadvertently? How valuable is sci-fi for this? I think it's, it's actually very valuable. Science fiction has has got its downside. So whether you're talking about movies or books or whatever, science fiction is limited by the imaginations of the writers or producers. It quite often plays fast and loose with the actual science. So there's the mantra of never lets reality get in the way of a good story. On the other hand, because science fiction, whether you're looking at books, movies, or whatever, is usually about the relationship in terms of what could go right or what could possibly go wrong. And, And that's where I get very excited when I'm watching sci-fi movies. Because if you put aside the, the scientific inaccuracies, it gives us a window almost into the soul of our relationship between people and technology. And that can reveal insights, it can reveal ways of things going wrong or ways of things going right that aren't immediately obvious otherwise.
1: And it also makes you address the, the moral implications of what's happening. I know that's what your book is about. And curious, well, what's your favorite sci-fi film book? <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, so I, I knew that question was was coming. So I, I the, the book that, that's coming out next week, I, I build it around 12 science fiction movies, which were chosen for their the narrative. But I must confess, I have a, a soft spot for every single movie for, for very different reasons. And so I, I have multiple different favorites depending on sort of what mood I'm in. But I must say the movie that I enjoy the most, which is somewhat controversial with some people, is Ex Machina. So so this is the movie about an a, a uber entrepreneur that designs... Um, a new form of artificial intelligence and a robot. Um, and the, the short story is that it turns around and kills him. But there's a lot more nuance there.
1: And it's, uh, it's a fascinating film as well. It makes you think about what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be conscious? What it, it it does it means
0: to ups- matter? It, it absolutely does. So, and the thing that I, I that really intrigues me about Ex Machina, I pull this out in the book, is that it, it paints a picture of the potential downsides of artificial intelligence that are not at all like the fears around a superintelligence that is going to destroy humanity. Instead, it gets viewers to ask the question: What if we create an AI that knows us so well that it knows how to manipulate us, but it isn't bound by the same rules? So, this is a story of an AI that that understands cognitive biases and human heuristics to an extent that it can make us fall in love with it. And even though we know that's happening, we're helpless to resist. So it's the ultimate form of manipulation.
1: Well, it's a sociopath. It's very similar, <laughs> to, how, it's very similar to how someone that has no empathy can manipulate it, others. It, it,
0: it absolutely is. But I would actually t- say it, it goes one step further. So I mean, a sociopath is it's still human at some level. If we create a machine that does this, Not only have they um, just sort of got um, sort of poor empathy or or a lack of empathy, they don't even have any basis for human-like empathy. There's no reason why they should. Why would a, a machine sort of think and feel like a human? So they're operating in a totally different plane. But if they can come down into the human plane and begin to work out how to manipulate us, yes, it's it's sociopathic behavior from our perspective, but from the AI's perspective, that means nothing.
1: Well, let's play devil's advocate. There's no reason to assume they'll be like us, but there's no reason to assume they won't be. Are,
0: are, I, they, are they conscious? That's kind of the that right, all okay. AI revolves around. It, it, it is. But I see no reason why they would have a form of consciousness which is, close to human. And in fact, I would actually say that it's almost impossible because not only our consciousness, but our mind, our self-awareness, how we operate is so deeply enmeshed with our biological form that it is incredibly unlikely that any artificial form of intelligence is going to have the same constraints or or the same frameworks within which it operates. And that's where I think we can have different forms of self-awareness different forms of of intelligence see how far back we need to go. Yeah. So I know because what we think of as our intelligence or our mind, mind or even our sort of self-awareness is so intricately connected with with our biology, it's hard to conceive of an an intelligent entity, which is still self-aware, but not based on our biology, having the same sort of perspectives, the same sort of even understanding of what intelligence is.
1: I suppose so. But if you look at humans, and we were to compare the autistic savant with the sociopath, with the extreme Empathetic individual, uh-huh. you can yeah. you can kind of get to the situation where you have human beings that are almost living completely different experiences. It's, it's uh, yeah. interesting to bring up as a topic.
0: It, it is, and I so I I think you're right, but I think even along that spectrum, um, although to us it looks like there are extreme differences there, we're still constrained by our biology, and I think it's it's intriguing to ask. How that the architecture that, that an AI sits in will actually affect how it how it perceives itself in the world uh, so one of the ways I actually explore this and this really is a very hypothetical thought experiment is it's almost like with cyberspace we're creating a fourth dimension so think of humans operating in, in three dimensions. Um, we can do a lot in three dimensions but if there's an entity that is working outside those dimensions it can do things that will seem like magic to us. And cyberspace or virtual reality is essentially that dimension that allows that to happen. It's a dimension, intriguingly, that's been created by humans, and we have an intellectual understanding of it, but we really don't have a visceral understanding of it, and we don't understand how some entity that was born into that dimension and lives within it is likely to operate.
1: Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I want to I transition to the risk now. How, yes. do you, how do you think about and how do you define risk? There's existential risk. There's catastrophic risk. There's reputation risk. How yeah. do you analyze different forms of risk when you're working with companies, governments, et cetera? And how can we better think about these? as a society? Yeah.
0: So so I, I have a very, very loose definition of risk, which I use, um, which is risk as being a threat to something that's of value to you or something that's important. And that thing of importance may be something you've already got and you don't want to lose or something. Something that you aspire to. So I said it's very loose because it, it doesn't really align with very formal definitions of risk. But it's also, to me, very helpful because in that value bucket you can put all sorts of things. You can put in that the, the long-term um, success of the human race. You can put in um, your reputation. You can put in your sense of self and your sense of well-being. And what I find that that definition of risk does is it helps people understand what is so important to them that they want to protect in a way that conventional framings of risk doesn't. So, for instance, when it comes to your, your sense of self and, and who you are, we actually have very, very few risk frameworks that help us really understand how to navigate that. And yet that's one of those things which is desperately important to most people's lives. And if you take away their sense of self, you're taking something that's away something that's fundamentally important to who they are. and and how they get value out of life.
1: Which is why we can't talk about religion or food or uh, quite a few topics because people Uh, find themselves by them.
0: That's exactly it. And yet, if we're gonna talk about risk, we've gotta talk about the things that are so important to people that they affect their lives deeply.
1: How do you think about the dynamic where different players have different risk tolerances? For instance, you have a Western country, you have China, which has a little bit less in terms of regulations and rules. How do you think about that and how it leads to technological advancement and inequity?
0: Sure, Uh, well, of course, I mean, if you think about uh, risk as a threat to value, it really depends what's the, what goes in the value bucket from a societal perspective. So different societies, even different people with different mindsets within different societies have different ideas of, of what's important. And that actually helps you begin to, to pass out how different people might think about risk. So you think about people who are typically considered to be risk tolerant. They They seem to take risks that other people won't take. More often than not, it's because they've got a different thing in the thing that's important to them bucket than other people. Um, So it's not necessarily that they're risk tolerant. It's just that they have a different perspective on what's a real risk and and what isn't relevant to them, if if that makes sense. And everybody's going to be slightly different in terms of what is important to them and, and what is not. And I in a, just, to, just to give you a little example of that, you think about people that that's indulge in extreme sport. So it's very easy to say they must be risk tolerant because they're doing stupid things. Actually in my experience, people that really partake in extreme sport, the value to them, the thing that's most important is the thrill they get from sailing close to the edge, but knowing exactly where that edge is. So to them, they're actually building value by what they're doing. They're not threatening value.
1: I we will still avoid those extreme sports regardless, <laughs> right. regardless of the values they're a little different so your background is nanotech i want to dive into that what were you focused on and where are we at today with nanotech
0: yeah so so i i was actually focused on what some people would consider to be the quite boring side of nanotech which is looking at really really small particles so particles just a few nanometers in diameter and looking at what happens when they get out into the envi- into the environment or into the human body but my my background coming into this is as a physicist and as somebody who understands and, and works in material science. So if you look at What most commercial nanotechnology is about. It's simply about being able to manipulate the properties of materials by building structures down at the the scale of just a few atoms and upwards. And because we know the base code of materials, the more we can begin to learn how to program in atoms and molecules, and by program, I mean position them very precisely, the more we can begin to engineer the properties of the materials that they make. So that's my background in, in nanotechnology. In terms of where we are at the moment, if you look at what's researchers and companies are doing with materials with very, very specific engineered products. We're having quite amazing advances in, in every, every sort of direction from how you create new batteries that, that store more energy and release it faster, how you generate renewable electricity through materials that have been precisely engineered, how you begin to merge together biological systems, and material systems, so you can actually program viruses, say, to create new materials. And there's a long, long list of other areas where we're learning effectively how to program with atoms and molecules.
1: What do you think that'll lead to?
0: Um, I think it'll lead to a world where we've got more interesting materials that do more interesting things. Um, What I don't think it will lead to is uh, a lot of the speculation around nanotechnology leading to, for instance, self-replicating nanobots that are going to swarm the Earth. That's a leap that goes from physical reality to physical unreality. It's just very hard to imagine how that that actually will fit within the the normal laws of the, the universe. What I think we will see though is where you've got challenges in the world, where those challenges are underpinned by limitations in the materials we use, we'll learn how to overcome those those limitations. Um, and just to give you one example here, and, and this is where I can get excited about this, but it, it doesn't necessarily seem that exciting to other people, but I think it is. If you think about the materials that, that we use these days, virtually everything that we use, Um, there's an analog in the natural world. So we're we're sort of somewhat constrained by the things that have just sort of developed over the eons of the the universe evolving. What we can now do though, because we know pretty precisely what happens when we put different atoms together in different configurations, we can actually train artificial intelligence systems to design brand new materials, materials that have never ever existed before. And we're actually discovering that the whole universe of possible materials is much bigger than the universe of materials that has developed and, and emerged naturally. So now we have the ability to totally transcend the natural world by creating materials that have never existed. And we can only do it because we can put together atoms and molecules in novel ways, but we can actually train computers to help us do that.
1: And AI is so relevant to this and to so many fields. It's, I like to say we're in an era of converging exponential technologies. Right. Yes. Things will move faster and faster and faster, which also makes predicting the risk harder and harder and harder. Incredibly difficult. Yes. So I want to transition a little bit you you've Talked a bit about what was it I wanted to say. um So you've been a bit in the university background. You've worked a bit with government, etc. How do you see the differences in those two settings when it comes to university, government, and then corporate, and how they deal with new technologies, how they try to prepare for them?
0: Yeah, yeah. So universities are, are typically thought of as as the, the the knowledge engines or the knowledge generators. We pay professors like myself and, and researchers to go off and ask interesting questions and do interesting stuff. And occasionally, something new and, and novel will come out of that. And, and traditionally, the idea has been that some of those ideas get traction within industry, within circles where they can commercialize those, and government is there making sure that, that doors are opened where there's something exciting and, and socially beneficial, and doors are closed when it looks like things are getting a little bit dangerous. The reality is that the, actually things are quite different. So universities are are still really powerful at generating not only new ideas, but also new technologies, or certainly the precursors of new technologies. What we actually see, though, is is most of the really impactful stuff that happens, happens in business, uh, whether it's at the entrepreneurial level or whether it's at the the larger corporate level. Because these are the organizations where people aren't necessarily constrained by a lack of imagination that you occasionally find with academics. They can imagine a a world that doesn't exist, and they can put together new and emerging capabilities to work well within that, that world that they imagine. So a lot of the push we see with technology innovation at the moment is actually coming from the corporate world, and especially with startups.
1: And all the talent for AI is going to the corporate world as well. Does it worry you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. lots of things worry me. I mean, I work in risk. I'm a I'm a professional worrier. Yes, it is. I and mean, if you look at a, a lot of the developments in AI, it's it's firmly placed in the commercial world. I, there are strong connections with with academia, but I would actually say a lot of the academics are on the fringe of what's possible. They're they're pushing really innovative new ideas in, but it's really at the corporate level that those ideas have been translated into something that's going to be transformative. Does it worry me? I think that there are big challenges here, and there are big potential liabilities, and to be honest, most AI companies realize this. They realize they're dealing with a powerful tech. They've got to think really careful about how to get it right and how to avoid missteps. And at the moment, we are seeing missteps, a lot of them fairly small. So you look at things like algorithmic bias and in companies like Facebook and Google, those are are things that shouldn't happen, but at least we got early flags from that so they could correct it. But companies are beginning to realize that they need new frameworks for working out how to do this safely. They're looking in parts to government to help them. And things are a little slow there because Government is still catching up. They're looking a little bit towards academia to see what thinkers can say about how you do this this safely and responsibly and ethically. But the reality is that there's a huge chasm between what companies want to do in terms of developing these powerful technologies, but doing it in a socially beneficial and responsible way and knowing exactly how to do that.
1: You see a lot of what's happening, in my opinion, at least for looking at risk. A lot of that's happening in non-governmental, non-business, non-university type settings, like the Future of Life Institute. You have a lot of these to open AI, you have a lot of these initiatives popping up. Do you yep. think Do you think that is the future going forward for most exponential technologies? I,
0: it, it's really difficult to tell. Um, and in some ways, it's it's not that unusual from other areas. It's just that it's maybe a little bit more visible here. So so these are the organizations that, that are a little bit like the, the sort of lubrication between sort of business and government and, and academia. They, they help translate information. They help contextualize it. And so this is where think tanks lie. And there's been a long history of, of organizations. Organizations like this, just helping sort of lubricate the, the development of positive, responsible technologies. With AI, there are two or three of these organizations that have become very prominent. Um, and actually, I think they, they play a very important role because they can act as, as both translators and they can act as organizations that frame problems, but also identify pathways forward. I don't know how long this will last. And it wouldn't surprise me if this landscape continues to evolve as, as companies change what they're doing, as governments learn governments learn how to do things differently. But certainly at the moment, the there's a lot of good and important ideas coming out of these organizations. There's a lot of good direction. I would have limitations with this is probably one of the things that does concern me here. That if you have one of these lubricating organizations that maybe doesn't have a perspective that is going to help society get to where it needs to be, there's a question of how they expand their their worldview so they can bring in the necessary understanding and expertise, and that's a barrier that we're still struggling to get over.
1: Especially because there's not enough funding.
0: Well, so so funding is a big issue. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that it's not enough, but I'm not sure it's going in the right direction. So you've had a lot of AI funding going into the ethics of AI. And I I must confess, I'm not convinced that we're actually asking the right questions when we're framing them in terms of ethics.
1: What are the right questions?
0: So, so to me, the right questions are getting far more pragmatic in terms of asking, uh, what could go wrong? And why do we think that that's wrong? And how do we get it to go right? So ethics asks questions that are two or three steps removed from there. So you take the, the trolley problem, for instance, where people will sweat over, is it better for an autonomous vehicle or something to kill one child or two adults or whatever? It's, a, it's an interesting philosophical question. But if you're actually developing a self-driving vehicle, there are other way more important questions you should be asking. And those questions are along the lines of, how do we actually ensure our technology is safe and it's fail safe? How do we ensure that there is the appropriate um, policy environment around what we're doing? So actually there are are appropriate checks and balances to developing this this technology. How do we ensure that we actually work with local communities? So people not only know what we're doing, but we can actually talk to them and we can co-develop the technology together. So our consumers buy into our vision and we actually have something which is gonna satisfy consumer needs. To me, those are all far more important questions than asking the, the trolley problem, for instance.
1: So it's basically theory versus practice. Universities too focused on theory and- it's,
0: it's, it's a little bit of that. And, and certainly if you ask a philosopher, what the big question give you a philosopher's answer. Um, I think we need stuff which is a far more practical in terms of helping people see the potential risks as well as the potential benefits and, and the pathway forwards. Do
1: you think of yourself as a pessimist or an optimist? <laughs>
0: Actually, I see myself as an optimist, I I think. Um, I'd I'd probably say a pessimistic optimist. But at the end of the day, I'm actually quite excited, very excited about what I see. But I can also see that the dark side of getting things wrong. So I actually have a hope and I, I actually believe that we can get a lot of stuff right. But I think we need to change a lot of the ways in which we think and the ways in which we work together to achieve that.
1: Amen to that. Why did, did you-, you write the book?
0: Why did I write the book? Because I've got a, a professional lifetime of things that I desperately want to say and I, I needed a platform. But it, but it gets to a lot of what we've been talking about. So if you think about the, the strong desire for most people, whether they're in academia, business or whatever, to do the right thing. to to innovate in ways which are going to benefit society, and you look at the the paucity of of information or insights that they have. I really wanted to write something which would make sense to everybody from innovators to high school kids to whatever, but actually help them see the world around what can go wrong and what could go right in a way that makes sense to them. And it turns out that sci-fi movies are a really good way of doing that. For a start, they're a great leveler. You can have a bunch of people watching a science fiction movie, whether they are from high school or whether they're Nobel laureates or whether they're just pretty much anybody. They can be in the same room, they can have the same experience, they can enjoy this movie in the same way. And immediately, that levels the playing field for opening conversations and helping people see things in different ways.
1: A big part of what we want to do with this podcast is related to that. It's my belief that Hollywood sells you dystopia, because dystopia is exciting. And that's... Okay, we don't, yes. We don't want everything to be perfect. But I, I think agree. people also create the future that they envision. If you think you'll be successful, you generally are. If you yep. think you won't, you generally won't. How do we reframe our views of the future? when most of what society and science fiction tells us Sucks.
0: Yeah. So I, I I think there are a couple of ways that it's useful to think about that. I, first of all, I'm not sure it, it's a bad thing that we have these dystopic visions because we're remarkably good at being titillated by them, but not necessarily influenced deeply by those those dystopic visions. It's, a, it's amazing how many people can enjoy a really dark science fiction movie and then be quite happy as they go out into the real world. On the other hand, what I think is really helpful is having a guide or some way of understanding how how those visions can be translated into something positive and something useful. So rather than just being titillated by the the darkness of a dystopia, have some way of helping people ask questions about, okay, what went wrong here? What can we do to prevent it? Um, Where is this? telling us things about how we should think differently about the world we're in and how can we turn that around to do things in a way which is actually going to build a better future So if you think about um, this topic exciting engaging entertaining science fiction movies along with somebody that can help see those in a way which flips them around and sees a, um, and illuminates a positive way forwards, that I think is actually really powerful and I think it's more powerful than writing optimistic science fiction although there's, there's actually quite a lot of thought about maybe science fiction should be more optimistic. Um, And there's some merit in that. But actually, I think we naturally gravitate to the dark stuff. I
1: would agree. And I think that that ability to question and think about the, the ethics and problems is important. But I think the problem comes in when you're dealing with people that, let's face it, don't have a great prospect for the future. This is right. the reason we have the president. We have people are worried about automation. They're worried about jobs. Yep. Everything seems negative and we want to go backwards. And those are the people that are much less likely to have these types of yep. deeper analysis.
0: So, so the question then is, how do we turn that round? I don't think we turn that round by, by controlling the, the fictional narratives. I think we turn it around by making sure that people that are exposed to them actually have the framing and the resources to contextualize them. Um, and I, this is actually another huge gap that's that part of my work begins to fill, but but this really does worry me. So if you ask the question, Um, Somebody goes and watches something like Ex Machina. They come out and they think, this AI stuff looks really scary. Where can I find out about it? So they do a quick Google search. What are the chances they're actually going to come up with something that within five minutes, they can get a clear idea of what the, the real pros and cons are with what's happening. And they can understand the nature of the positive benefits of AI, as well as where we've got to be cautious. The chances are they will not find that resource unless they're really lucky. So then the question is, how do we make sure that people can find what they need? to make informed decisions.
1: And that's hard because Google, YouTube, they show you more and more extreme versions of whatever you're looking at. You you start with one thing and then you go down a rabbit hole.
0: And there's another risk. Yes. Yeah. So so I'm actually really interested in how we turn that around. And I think there are multiple parts of that. But part of it starts in taking experts and start, say, with universities. We've got so many experts in this country that know really cool, interesting stuff. How do we get the stuff out of their heads into the public domain so within just two or three minutes people can add? Actually absorb that and understand something in a in a different and a useful way. Netflix. Well, Netflix is one. Um, YouTube is the one that I've been particularly interested in, because there we we know and you know from your stuff that you can actually you have the ability if you're smart to create content which is going to be meaningful to people. And you can bridge that gap between the the expert and what's in your head and the the people who are looking for content. I actually don't think a lot of experts utilize YouTube anywhere near as well as they could do.
1: Well, the problem is they're they're worried about the problem versus worried about conveying the problem. This is what you see with scientists and researchers. They're worthless when it comes to marketing and getting the message out. You're right. Any way to change that?
0: <laughs> write a book about science fiction movies.
1: Um, <laughs> what, are the, what other movies are in there? What are some of the lessons that you want to share with people that are listening?
0: Okay. Yeah. So, I, I, so I should say, first of all, I 12 movies that, that were chosen. So there's a narrative arc around um, converging technology. So moving from biotechnology to cyber technologies and AI through to materials technologies and, and nanotechnology. So because of that, they're not movies that a lot of people would expect to see in a book like this. Some of them are real clunkers. Some of them are um, really critically acclaimed. I love them all. So we 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 start with Jurassic Park and look at uh, bioengineering, as well as the dangers of really powerful entrepreneurs that that just sort of warp the sense of what's possible. Um, we then go on to a, a relatively little known movie over in, in the States coming from the UK called Never Let Me Go, which is uh, about cloning. And it's not Really, a science fiction movie. It was not never designed to be such, but it shows the really devastating impact on society of a technology that harms a few people to benefit the the many. We then go on to minority reports. We talk about pre crime and um, making um, really rash decisions on who is likely to be bad and who is not. Do so you think we're starting that now? We're all, we're already doing that with with um, technologies such as Palantir. We're already profiling people and tagging them as being more likely to be a criminal or less likely to be a criminal. That that actually is is very worrying.
1: Do you think there's Um, a big difference between China's social scoring system and what's happening behind the scenes in the US?
0: I, you know I don't know that's a really good question I don't have a good answer to that but obviously underlying both of those is the same idea that you can take multiple bits of data and you can put them into an AI black box and something will come out that ultimately affects somebody's life so but I, I I'd have to think about sort of how close they are where the similarities are where the dissimilarities are so yeah I going through the list that's yeah that's pre-crime we then go on to cognitive enhancement with the, the film limitless and ask questions about smart drugs and where we're going with how we actually chemically enhance our um, intelligence. The films then begin to make a bit of a transition. So we've got Elysium next, which looks at social justice. So Elysium is one of those films that was pretty largely panned by um, critics, and it's a very earnest film indeed. But it does have something interesting to say about social injustice that's driven by technology innovation. And then from there, we begin to get into human augmentation and and artificial intelligence. So Ghost in the Shell comes next, not the, the Scarlett Johansson version, but the 1995 Japanese anime. which is an absolutely wonderful film. It's it's probably one of my favorite actually of the the lot because it gets deep into the philosophy of what it means to be human as you begin to increasingly replace parts of you with, with machines. From there, we go on to, if I'm getting my listing right, ex machina, I think, because we're beginning to make that transition over into artificial intelligence. We then go from there into Transcendence. So Transcendence is another movie, I think you got 20% on, on Rotten Tomatoes with Johnny Depp, and it's a movie about the, the singularity. But it's a great movie for exploring ideas about and how these such as nanotechnology and AI come together. It also gives me a chance to talk about some of the fallacies of thinking about things such as runaway exponential extrapolation with with technologies there. Um, From Transcendence, we go to another movie which relatively few people would have come across. In fact, I have to test you on this. A movie called The Man in the White Suit, 1951, black and white British movie. No go. Yep. So this was a a 1950s comedy coming out of the UK. And it's a little slow, but I would say it's probably one of the most scientifically accurate movies I know. It's based in the, the cotton mills back in the the north of England in the 1950s, and a scientist that that discovers and creates a super strong stain-resistant thread, which he then makes clothes that last forever out of. And the whole story is about how he thinks that this is the best thing since sliced bread until he discovers that the companies hate it because it's going to put them out of business. The workers hate it because it's going to get rid of their jobs. Even his landlady hates it because she's got nothing to wash, so she can't make an extra bit of money on the side. And it's a great piece of social commentary about the downsides of a seemingly good technology. Like AI, Uh, Replaces
1: jobs and manual labor gives you. That,
0: you, you can you can take it in so many ways. Yes, and I'm sure I'm missing something here, but but just to wrap up the ones I, I can remember, we then make a transition because I want to deal with a couple of big issues. So we go on from there to um, the, the Dan Brown film Inferno, which is another um, critically unincla- unacclaimed <laughs> movie, but it gives me the chance to talk about uh, dual-use technologies and gain of fun- function. So the idea that you can take a virus and you can make it even more virulent. I um, it allows me to play with the idea of what happens if you have an incredibly rich entrepreneur who thinks that they're going to be the savior of mankind by creating a virus that in this case, it kills half of the world's population. It opens up some really intriguing conversations around moral rights versus moral wrongs when it comes to powerful technologies. And then we move from there to uh, The Day After Tomorrow, and that's there, which is the, the climate change movie from 2012. And, and that's there because I felt I couldn't write a book without doing something on climate change. And It was the best of a bad bunch, so I I spin a tale around resiliency and climate change with that. And then I finish with Carl Sagan's Contact. And the reason that Contact's there is that it gives a really unique perspective on the nature of science and scientific process and the role of belief in science. And it begins to wrap everything up in terms of putting the humanity back into the, the process of technology innovation.
1: And that's kind of what sci-fi does. It puts humanity back into control, so to speak. <laughs> and typically, typically a writer, when they're writing a sci-fi prod, book, project, et cetera, they're doing a really strong job of impacting they're, they're taking the biggest problem they see and they're amplifying that forward into the future.
0: That that That's right. But you're exactly right on the humanity side. So what they're doing is they're actually looking at the human stories here more often than not. And that's where the, these stories can be so insightful, even the, the apparently bad ones.
1: You know what I would like to see? You should try to pitch Netflix on making a series on this. They've killed it with Black <laughs> Mirror. And this is... I imagine this would be an incredible type of follow-up to a black mirror, looking at that from it would a- be perspective.
0: I think it would be really interesting. You're you're right. Yeah. I mean, as it is, my students here get this each year. We actually have a course based on the the, the 12 movies. So it's the the, the same sort of thing. except as a student, you get to sit in class and watch a movie each week. That sounds like a lot of fun.
1: And what was your favorite sci-fi book growing up? What was the one that impacted you the most?
0: When I was a young teenager, it was definitely the works of Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov. Um, So I I, I sort of very traditional and, and boring in that way. And so interestingly with with Clark, there are a number of of things that that stuck with me. Fountains of Paradise was the one that really stuck. So this is his book where he talks about creating um, the space elevator using um, incredibly strong thin filaments, which are very, very similar to carbon nanotubes. And it it stuck with me just because I was so intrigued by the the premise of that. But I would say sort of later in life, I'm looking back, those are interesting stories but in terms of their literary style, I must confess that they're a little, little clunky and naive. The sci-fi that I, I really love and turn to constantly these days has to be Ian M. Banks. Sadly, passed away a few. I, yeah, I, I guess so many people say this, but I and I've never really quite worked out why I like his stuff so much. I think it's it's in part because he has this ability to simultaneously create fantastical futures that have a lot of internal consistency. And he either adheres to the, the known laws of the universe or where he breaks them, he breaks them in, in meaningful ways. But the other reason I think I like them is that they're literally strong. I Banks was a poet. And you can see that that understanding of poetry in the way he writes, the way he crafts a phrase, the, the way he develops a narrative and a story. Um, and that combination of the, the really quite amazing sort of thinking in the worlds he creates with that ability to convey it with a, a deep literary sense is very appealing.
1: And he writes a story that doesn't end. You get to the <laughs> end of the book and the, it's like, OK, where's the next page?
0: I know, yes, yes, which, which is always, well, it's, it can be frustrating or good, but I, it, it keeps you intrigued.
1: It can be. Outside of your own work, what fields or areas are you most interested
0: in? That's a tough one because I I am such a, a, a magpie with what I do these days. I mean, I, I'm no, no longer sure what I call myself because I, I work across the, the social sciences and, and policy to, well, I mean, sort of sci-fi, sort of literary stuff as well as physics. So I, I don't know because I, I had the luxury of indulging in, in stuff that I do. That's such a really tough question, actually.
1: It's okay. It means you've built a good life.
0: It, well, I guess it does. But but I'll, actually, I'll, I'll tell you. So I, I do indulge in a lot of these areas, but increasingly, I'm really interested in in how the the arts and creativity come to play in having serious discussions on how you, you build a better future. Um, and it's so, these are areas that I was never trained in. I've sort of had to learn through working with people, and this is where the power of collaboration becomes incredibly important. Um, but especially this idea of creative influences that, that break down the, the, the ruts that you create in your own mind when you sort of you develop a, an understanding of the world and you develop your own expertise and discipline, you're effectively creating walls. And I'm really intrigued with how the arts, whether it's anything from the, the visual or performing arts to, to a range of others, can help break down those walls and help you see things things in different ways.
1: Just recently had Brian Verstig on the program, co-founder of Deep Space Industries, and he's yeah. a, it's the asteroid mining company and he's essentially mm. a creative artist. But what he does is he looks at technology and how sci fi authors will create a story. He'll create graphic representations of something that seems impossible, but the, the tech, the physics, the chemistry of everything works. So it yep. expands your mind without cheating so that you're able to innovatively and creatively think about the future
0: in new ways. He's yeah. uh,
1: quite good at it.
0: Yeah, and, and that's exactly the space that, that I'm really intrigued in.
1: Because we have so many people, that billions that are coming online that have potential, but they may not have realized it yet. I couldn't agree more. So is there, okay, I have one last question for you, Andrew. And that's, if you had to leave people with something today, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything. What would it be and why?
0: It would be, think about the technologies you're using, that you're influencing, that maybe you're part of developing in terms of what 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 could possibly go wrong, and then work out how you can change things to make things go right. As simple as that
1: basically be the change you want to see in the world with technology. yes That's with technology uh, that's a that's a pretty awesome pretty awesome quote and thing to follow up on I think we could all do a bit better job of that where's the best place for people to reach out and say hey
0: oh um, Twitter I'm at 2020 science is probably the best place I've also got a blog at 2020 science.org but I would say hang out on Twitter where
1: did the meaning come from 2020 science
0: oh so that was you know I this was when I launched my blog about 10 years ago now and and the year 2020 seemed a long way away. So it was a, it was a play on both sort of looking to the future with 2020 and also with 2020 vision. And it's sort of stuck. I'm not quite sure what we do in a few years when we get to 2020.
1: Then you'd have to look backwards. What was the biggest surprise over the past 10, almost 10 years?
0: Oh goodness! Uh, yeah, that's a that's another big question. Oh, so many big surprises. Um, the the rise of artificial intelligence huge surprise because it hit a sort of basically hit a wall um, a decade or so ago. The and the ambivalence towards nanotechnology was a surprise. And everybody seemed to be talking about nanotech, and now even though researchers and companies are doing really interesting stuff, you really don't hear people talking about it anymore. So so that that lack of interest has actually taken me unawares. And the then the other stuff, um, gene editing. That, that was a huge step change when we learned how to precisely edit the genome.
1: With nanotech, it's just the, it's the hype cycle. It, it they drop is. down and then if they're really true and important, they explode upwards. So right. I think it, really that's what we see with nanotech. But people I, have lost enough money that they don't want to bet on it right now.
0: I, I I think you're right. And I suspect there are a lot of nanotech folks out there that are actually quite pleased about this because they can operate under the radar without all the public attention.
1: Absolutely. And I'm sure that that's always good for you as well as a professor. you to grind it without having to be too much in the spotlight right awesome so guys check out the book you can find them on twitter 2020 science thanks for tuning in and thanks for coming on today that's
0: wonderful thanks very much great discussion
1: and guys if you've enjoyed this and you want to support us you can leave a review you can find us on patreon patreon.com slash fringe fm or just share it with a friend share it on twitter etc help us reach more people so that these type of important conversations get out there thanks cheers